Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. The Athletic. Lionel Messi's move to Inter Miami appeared to be a marketing dream for all concerned. That was before his preseason tour of Asia. After playing just seven minutes in Saudi Arabia and missing a last dance with Cristiano Ronaldo, Messi fell to feature in Hong Kong with the fallout still rumbling. The crowd was uh, shouting by the end of it uh, for a refund. You can see the thumbs down by some of those uh, supporters. So why has Messi's no-show caused geopolitical tensions to rise? And is the GOAT in danger of becoming a marketing show pony in the final stages of his illustrious career? I'm Ayo Akimolari. Welcome to the Athletic Football Podcast. All right, let's get into this. We have the Athletics' Adam Crafton and also our US correspondent, Paul Tenorio, who has actually been with Inter Miami on their preseason tour of Saudi Arabia and also Asia as well. And for that reason, Paul, let's start with you. Let, let's get an overview of what exactly is going on with Messi and Inter Miami and why has it caused such a stir out there? Well, the tour was meant to be this huge commercial opportunity for Inter-Miami to capitalize on the fact that Leo Messi is playing in MLS and playing for Inter-Miami. And so they designed this tour to go from Riyadh, Saudi Arabia, where they played two friendlies, to Hong Kong for another friendly, and then on to Tokyo, an Asia tour to grow the fan base, reach all these new fans, bring people into the brand, and, and obviously benefit financially from all of that. And the tour started off not great from a sporting standpoint. They lost both games in Saudi Arabia. The second game, they were smashed 6 nothing. There was no Ronaldo on the field. Messi played after it was already 6 nothing. Um, so it wasn't quite the hype that we thought the store would, this tour would start off with. But they go to Hong Kong, and Messi doesn't play at all. And the fans don't realize that he's not going to play until the final few minutes of the clock are ticking off and they start to chant for a refund and they start to boo. And when the final whistle sounds, I mean, the, the crowd goes crazy, um, just so angry, so upset. And um, in the moment, totally understandable. You ha you've bought all these tickets for high prices to see Messi play. Everyone's going to be upset. And I was maybe a little bit surprised that David Beckham got booed, but I understood where the sentiment was coming. But what I don't think anyone anticipated was how much more this incident grew as the tour continued. So Inter-Miami leaves Hong Kong, they head to Tokyo, and Messi plays three days later. He plays 30 minutes in the game in Tokyo against Vissel Kobe, and that only inflames what happened in Hong Kong from the government standpoint, from the newspapers, the state-run newspapers that are running articles. Um, it's become even more of an insult now that Messi would not play in Hong Kong and would play 30 minutes in Tokyo. So when you look at the tour in totality, it wasn't great from a sporting perspective, though no one expected it to be. It's preseason. Results aren't supposed to matter. But still, you lose a player to an ACL injury in El Salvador. You lose a big, big game against Ronaldo's team 
on a on a pretty big platform. You only win one of your games and it's in Hong Kong and that's overshadowed by Messi not playing. Not exactly the type of publicity that Inter Miami was hoping for from this tour. Um, and, you know, just one preseason game left. They'll play against Newell's old boy, Messi's boyhood club, Tata Martino, the manager, a legend there. Um, but they're going to have to hope that the results are really good this season to kind of overshadow or to kind of balance out the negativity that came from this preseason that was supposed to be this kind of hype building machine. Yeah, Adam, you your pieces has dropped on the Athletic on especially, you know, what went on in, in Hong Kong and the hostile response that Inter Miami and Messi in particular received. Can you just give us a bit more of a glimpse as to why it caused such a raucous? Yeah, well, it's it's a, it's a pretty mad story, to be honest. Um, and I suppose it shows the cost of Messi, the, the attraction of Messi, the value of Messi, not only to Inter Miami, but to kind of everywhere he goes, right? So when he was going to Riyadh to, to do what, you know, it was billed as this kind of, everything is now billed as the last dance, isn't it? But it was billed as the last dance between Ronaldo and Messi. Didn't really work out like that with Ronaldo being injured. That obviously would have disappointed I think Saudi Arabia to a certain extent, but that was kind of nothing in comparison to what happened when they then go to Hong Kong. And I think most people would just kind of look at what's happened in Hong Kong, where basically a footballer's gone, he's not fully fit, it's pre-season, therefore he can't play, and just think, well, what the hell is all the fuss about? And I suppose you have to place it in the context of what Hong Kong currently is and has been over the past few years. You've had a you've had a a city there that has had very severe COVID-19 lockdowns. You've had a situation where there's been pretty vigorous protests over the last few years as well, sort of increased power uh, for Beijing in, uh, kind of over the lawmakers of, of Hong Kong as well. And I think taking all that into account, it's meant that Hong Kong, which I think most people in the West have kind of always thought of as this kind of bursting metropolis in the Far East, just isn't what it was, what it what it used to be anymore. Uh, from that perspective, you know that the footfall has not recovered. Um, kind of, if you go back to 2018 and compare it to now, I think you know last year 2023 was around sort of 55 to 60 percent compared to what it was in 2018. And, and then you've had big stars, people like Taylor Swift. There's you know new lesson for for sports fans. There's always a Taylor Swift angle. Um, you can get into any piece whatsoever. Um, Taylor Swift didn't um, add Hong Kong to her tour dates. She did add Tokyo and Singapore. And I think as a result of that, Hong Kong is starting to try and organize it, what they're calling them these mega events to try and really reestablish uh, the city as a place to go, the place to be. And as a result of that, you had Hong Kong, the, the government of Hong Kong sort of putting money into this along with Tatler Asia that were organizing the tour. And then when he didn't play, it was like all hell broke loose. And, you know, what I said there about kind of more of a kind of Beijing mentality increasingly coming into Hong Kong, I think it meant that it was perceived Messi not playing as a huge slight, as though, you know, as though he was being personally offensive. And you had these really quite staggering editorials going on in kind of state affiliated newspapers, which were saying things like, you know, dark forces from abroad are uh, behind this. You had conspiracies about like CIA involvement. You had conspiracies about Jorge Mas, who's the owner of uh, co-owner of Inter Miami. The fact that his dad was a 
an exile from Cuba and anti-Castro, therefore he might uh, his son might be anti-Chinese and therefore Messi might be anti-Chinese as a consequence. And it all kind of snowballed and it snowballed to the extent that like, you know, if you go on Messi's Instagram page now and just look at the comments, even under a picture he posted with his family the other day, you will just find like thousands of pictures of Cristiano Ronaldo as memes kind of trying to undermine him. And then you'll also have, you know, apologize to your fans in Asia Chinese flag, stories of people that saved up all this money to go and watch them play. And then the big, I suppose the biggest slight that was perceived was that he then went to play in Tokyo, in Japan, three days after not being fit enough to play in Hong Kong. And I think that was almost the tipping point that kind of, uh, I suppose, tipped the whole conversation over the edge. And then since then, you've also had Argentina games, national team games, which were meant to be played in China in March, being cancelled which is pretty amazing to be honest so it has really just kind of turned into this diplomatic geopolitical cultural moment and Messi's probably in the middle of it thinking what that all, all I've done is pulled a groin right it's 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 pretty extraordinary Paul I was just thinking about that and I was sort of Alan just led me to my, my, my next question really look you've got a team Messi 36 years old Suarez 37 Busquets 35 Jordi Alba, 34. I mean, these aren't young men. <laughs> these things do happen in football. It's just such a shame that one of those players in particular is probably one of the biggest stars in global football. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think there are a few things that Adam said that really sparked things that I'm experiencing following Inter-Miami around both last year when Messi first arrived and through the preseason this year. And the biggest is that you have to learn, and I think even every one of us is learning the number of degrees higher Messi is than pretty much anyone else. Like Ronaldo probably would have the same sort of impact, but he is so many levels above Busquets and Alba and even Suarez when it comes to uh, celebrity. So when you, when I arrived in Hong Kong, it was this huge event. It did feel different than it felt in Riyadh. It did feel different than it felt in Tokyo. Everything felt like it was pointing toward this game. So, you know, for the training session the day before, I tried to take a cab to the stadium. They had to stop a few blocks away and I had to get out because the streets were blocked off to allow people to walk to the stadium unencumbered. And and the, and the streets were filled with people as though it was a game day. I left the stadium that night, 40,000 people for a training session, by the way. And I walked to go get dinner downtown. It was about an hour walk for me. I couldn't look anywhere without seeing posters and billboards and signs for this game. And there were four or five players on those signs, but only one of them was what this game was for, what this event was for. And that became very apparent the next day. And this is something that Miami has already encountered and will continue to encounter is people are going to be disappointed when they get into Miami and they don't get messy. So I was in Chicago. I live in Chicago. I was at the game at Soldier Field. They sold out Soldier Field and NFL Stadium, highest grossing revenue game in MLS history in terms of ticket prices and tickets sold. And Messi didn't play. He was injured. And so there was this huge event, huge moment. And the Fire did the best they could to capitalize on it. They played well. Shakiri scored a couple goals. You try to pull some of those fans in. But the fans feel disappointed because they paid jacked up prices to see Messi, not to see Busquets and Alba against Chicago Fire. And the same thing here in Hong Kong, where you have to weigh these these realities, which is that Messi is, in fact, a human being. His muscles do get inflamed or tear or pull, and he's not able to just play on a whim. And you also have these events that are built around Messi being there and around Messi playing. And so how do you find and strike that balance? And 
you know, this isn't a new phenomenon. When David Beckham came to Major League Soccer, the same thing happened. He was injured when he arrived with the LA Galaxy. He played that first friendly against Chelsea, but he had an ankle injury and he missed many, many games after that. And people were holding signs in Dallas where they had bought these jacked up prices tickets and it said, you know, bench it like Beckham and things like that. And so I think Miami is getting a dose of that. And it's it's difficult, especially, I think, even more so for an event like this in Hong Kong, because Miami is going back to Chicago this year as part of their regular season schedule. How often are they going to take a flight to Hong Kong and have this huge event and this opportunity where people were buying tickets to fly from mainland China to Hong Kong to see him play and and spending all this money to see him play? And so that is, I, I think, a very difficult dance for Inner Miami to manage. And, and I wonder whether they may be I mean, I think they had to have not anticipated how big it would be for Messi to not step on the field even for three or four or five minutes to play. But that is the reality when you're dealing with a celebrity, a personality as big as Messi. And I think Inter-Miami has learned that in a very harsh way, but it's it's going to be a part of their reality as long as Messi's on the team. When he doesn't play, people are going to be angry about it. You're listening to The Athletic Football Podcast with Ayo Akinwalere. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. I think there's like two or three things going on with that particular moment, that game in Hong Kong. You've got, I think first of all, you have just like, Pretty ordinary Hong Kong football fans who have paid a hell of a lot of money. You know, you're talking in some cases beyond 500 500 US dollars for tickets. And they feel ripped off. You've gone to the Ritz, you've ended up in the travel lodge. I think another level of it is this kind of just obsession with probably people aged kind of 25 and below who go to events and they want to produce their own content basically from these moments, Right. They want to have that picture that they're taking of Messi on the pitch, a little clip of him doing a trick uh, during the warm-ups of the game or whatever, or being on the pitch that they then put on Snapchat, on Instagram, or memes or blogs or whatever it is. And I think that I think that plays into it a little bit as well. And that's where you have this really performative backlash as well. And then on top of that, you have this feeling of kind of this political sort of slight people being slighted. And I think that's where the Chinese decision, you know, to, to to stop doing these games in March for the Argentine national team has come into it. And that's also where you've had a lot of Chinese people on social media sort of writing to um, liquor companies that Messi has partnerships with saying, you need to cut ties with this guy. Like this guy's insulted. China is insulted Hong Kong. He doesn't respect us. He's a puppet for the States, all of this sort of stuff. So I think those, those are the different things going on. And then you also have on top of that, I think China, just going off what the uh, kind of the political analysts were saying and academics were saying in this piece, China's relationship with Argentina has also become quite interesting since Argentina have a new president who is, you know, kind of this self-confessed anarcho-capitalist, uh, Javier Mille, who was sort of saying on the campaign trail that, you know, the, the Chinese government are assassins and he wasn't going to work with communists and you have this block of the like BRICS, which is Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa. The Argentines were invited to join. They then decided to, to withdraw from that. 
uh, when the new president came in. And obviously the Chinese, it's kind of this counterweight to, to Western powers. And when Argentina don't go into that, it's seen probably in Beijing as a bit of a slight when you add it to the things that the president's saying. And therefore, when a star player from a star, not just a player, is it? You know, he is, you think of Argentina, he's the first person who comes into your head, it's Leo Messi. So when that opportunity to kind of undermine Argentina comes along, I don't think it's too conspiratorial to suggest that Beijing may have been, you know, welcoming that opportunity to kind of draw a little bit of a line in the sand. And it's not the first time we've seen this kind of sporting retaliation, which can seem quite petty to the outside world. But there was, you know, a really famous case with the NBA a few years ago where you had, was it the Houston Rockets? Is yeah, it Rockets? Houston Rockets, Daryl Morey. I've got my sports right. Uh, Houston Rockets, yeah, Daryl Morey, who was, uh, I think, the general manager. And he was retweeting in support of the protests in Hong Kong, the pro-democracy protests. And as a result of that, the Chinese state TV channel basically just cut off the NBA for like 28 months apart from sort of a couple of games. And then there was a game where after Meza Ozil criticised the treatment of Muslims in China, you had the Arsenal-Manchester City Premier League game that wasn't shown in China. So we have seen this kind of retaliation through sport um, at different points. And this may be another example of it, or it might just be they woke up and didn't like the fact Messi had gone to Japan and didn't like the fact he hadn't t- turned up to the game, felt a bit insulted, you know, maybe overthinking it. But there's all these different conversations, I think, going on. But Adam, I think it's interesting too to to note that Messi provides a massive platform for anyone to to capitalize on, whether it's somebody on social media or a politician making a statement or a newspaper writing an editorial. When it's about somebody who is as big as Messi, it can increase the reach of of those statements people people listen people pay attention and and that is the gravity of leo messi and that's you know that's why this fallout is so big and and that's why you know inner miami is has full store displays in hong kong adidas stores he is just such a huge huge figure that this this provided i I thought it was really interesting in your story that this this moment provided this enormous platform to then utilize kind of in the fallout from him not playing. Yeah, I think the the other thing is, as you say, you know, your experience of being out there was Messi's face was everywhere. I think you can't underestimate how heavily promoted his presence in this game was. And therefore, when we on the outside look at this being like, it was a football match, sometimes people don't play. It was almost promoted as a Messi event, arguably more than into Miami. It was almost Beckham and Messi right, seem to be the, the the branding of it to a large extent. I mean, I would say Beckham even a sideshow to that. I, you know, it was interesting in the training session, you know, the, the day before the whole team came out and, you know, when Busquets came out, there was a smattering of applause. Oh, we, we know who you are and Alba the same. And then Suarez came out a bit later and he got a bit of a bigger applause. And then Messi came out and the stadium erupted. And yeah, the only person that came close to that level was Beckham when he when he was kind of a surprise appearance when Beckham showed up. And it was the same on game day. And I, and that's where, like, for me, the red flag first started was pregame because the whole team came out, they announced the lineups, and Messi was announced as being on the bench. 
And the substitutes came out, and Suarez and Messi were not among the substitutes to come out and warm up when Busquets and Alba were. And a few minutes closer to game time, the two emerged from the tunnel, kind of almost like they were trying to, I don't want to say sneak in, but it was definitely after the rest of the teams and the players had come out. And of course, Messi can't sneak in anywhere, right? So he comes out and the fans go crazy. But he was wearing a pink hoodie and black pants and sneakers. And I, when I saw that he wasn't in boots, and Suarez was, by the way, and, and he was in uniform, I thought, Messi's not going to play. But I was like, how could that be? Because they've announced him as a sub. There's been no indication that he's not going to play. And he went and sat. And I thought, okay, maybe this is like, you know, he is injured. He's only going to play a short amount of time. So he'll go back in and he'll do a full warm up at halftime, get on the bike, whatever he needs. But he came back out again with the sneakers on and the and the warm up pants and the hoodie. And I said, oh, man, he's not playing. And it took another like 25, 30 minutes for the stadium, I think, to realize, you know, he's not getting up. And so to your point, and this was in the article as well, there was no sort of indication to the stadium itself that Messi wasn't going to play. You know, it seems like Tatler Asia had no idea until 15 minutes before the game, and but the fans didn't have an idea until 65, 70 minutes into the game. And I think that only added to the disappointment. Yeah, j- just on that, Paul, I spoke to the, the chairman of Tatler Asia. I mean, sort of felt a bit sorry for him, this guy who's sort of organized this event and is dealing with fallouts from all different directions and he he was saying as you said he only knew he only knew sort of quarter of an hour before the event he was saying you know we felt the event was perfectly organized except for the fact we didn't really have any visibility about this injury until kind of just before the game started and then you have this almost like pretty farcical episode he he describes where he's spending the first half trying to persuade into Miami to get Messi onto the pitch and it seems absurd to us, right? Like the guy's declared himself in, injured, even though he's on the subs bench, I suppose. So maybe not to some extent. And the medical team had declared him unfit to play, according to Tata Martino that morning, that it would be a huge, quote unquote, huge risk for him to play. Right. So you have this kind of mad scenario playing out where the organizer of the event is, is basically pleading with Inter Miami, like, get this, you need to get him on the pitch in some way. At halftime, but it was communicated by the Inter Miami CF club management that there would be no possibility for Messi to play in the game due to an injury, Tatreja immediately informed the government. Tatreja subsequently spent the second half urging the Inter Miami CF leadership to instruct Messi to address the fans to no avail. And then there were some really like remarkable, like baffling interviews after the game, where you have like a professor of um, like physical education from a university in Hong in a university in Hong Kong, basically saying, "Look, Messi wasn't on crutches, so he should have been, you know, he should have been on the pitch." This was kind of like some of the stuff that was going round, and you're like, "What is going on? You're a professor of education, you're <laughs> and you're telling this guy to to go out injured." But then I think there was also. There was a few extra slides, so like a trophy presentation at the end of the game, and he was kind of, kind of at the back of that. And it was one of those things where I think, I think if Messi was somebody who was more comfortable as an orator, in it, you know, able to speak English and address crowds, which isn't really his personality. It's not a criticism; it's just not him. But if he would have been someone that could pick up a microphone and and actually, you know, almost at half time, say, "I'm really happy to be here." Uh, really honoured, you know, enjoy training essay. I'm really sorry my body is not up to it, but I love you all. Maybe I'll be back one day in the future. Hugs, kisses, goodbye, right? And I think you might have got away with it, 
But then when you don't do that, and then when also I think John, there's this guy, John Lee, who's the, they have a chief executive who leads the government of Hong Kong, which sounds more like a business than a kind of legislature, but that's kind of the, that's, that's the title there. And it, it looks to people there as though he'd sort of avoided shaking his hand during that presentation by being at the back. So all these things just kind of accumulated and accumulated. And then you add on to it, rocking up to Japan three days later and playing, and it just snowballed from there. Mm-hmm. I, I guess um, in comparison, this is where the PR machine that is Cristiano Ronaldo kind of steps up. You know, he, you know, I mean, that's gone viral, really, him talking to the Chinese people saying, I can't be with you, I love you. You know, those classic sort of biblical kind of saint-like, you know, PR triumphs really that Ronaldo seems to have actually smashed um I guess Paul uh, from a messy perspective and he's always been incredibly famous but going to into Miami it's a different kind of machine in terms of how he's being used is this now what Messi has to get used to being flowing out and being strung out in front of crowds to to try and recoup some of this uh, inter Miami PR but also MLS PR let's not forget yeah, and and Leo Messi PR too. I mean, he's got he's got stakes in the Asian market as well. I, I think Adam nailed it in that Messi is is a different personality than Ronaldo. We know that for sure. They they couldn't be quite more opposite, and he's never been comfortable being a public figure, being in the public eye, being held up as anything. I mean, even in his wonderful Michelob Ultra commercial in the Super Bowl that many people thought was the best commercial of, you know, he said three words: "No Michelob Ultra." You know, so. He's never been comfortable in those moments. And I think that that certainly contributed here. I mean, David Beckham, after the game, took the microphone to do a bit of what Adam was suggesting that Messi could have done, right? He tried to, in a way, kind of fall on the sword or on the microphone to explain, you know, we're so sorry. We hope to be back to entertain you again. And of course, the fans were booing. But, you know, Beckham, I think, has over time, he learned to embrace his celebrity, to embrace this this kind of side of who he was, the spokesman. And you saw it in action in the moments after the game by taking the microphone, giving that speech, doing a loop around the stadium, waving at each section as he went, you know, and some people were were yelling things at him, giving him the finger, you know, letting him know they weren't accepting his apology, but he just kept smiling and going around the field. At one point, a pitch invader ran on and they were going to arrest him and Beckham went up and said, no, no, don't arrest him. He gave him a hug. He signed his shirt. You know, those are things that I think people like Beckham and Ronaldo who are more comfortable in those moments, in those environments, know that they they can do or should do to try to ease things. And it's just, it's not really who Messi is. And and you can see it in, in kind of when he picks and chooses the moments to do it. He's very um, discerning and, and he's very, I think he understands kind of when he has to do something um, versus like in Hong Kong when it would have been a last minute decision. Like, I think he needs to be prepared to go out and say something. So, you know, since he joined Inter Miami as an example, you know, him getting up in Japan and doing a press conference, that was the second time he had ever done a press conference as an Inter Miami player. You know, he had spoken only twice outside of press conferences since becoming an Inter Miami player to the crowd. He spoke when he was introduced in Miami and he spoke after he won the Ballon d'Or to a stadium that had come to celebrate his Ballon d'Or in Miami. So those moments where he is willing to take the mic and willing to speak to people are are few and far between. And and I think, you know, the hard part for us is, well, wait a second, you are one of the most famous people in the world. You you should be okay taking a microphone and speaking, but it, it's just not his personality. And I think 
you know, there's not a lot of um, understanding for that, for, for somebody of his stature to, to be an introvert and to not want to be in those moments. Well, it's like, well, you don't really have a choice, do you? Because you're in the spotlight. And I think Messi has kind of pushed back on that by just kind of embracing who he is and saying, no, I'm, I'm okay just sitting over here on the side or behind the rest of the team during the trophy ceremony and, and trying to kind of hide as best I can. I think there's there's two points with that. One is that that is so not American sports, right? Like the the idea that like access is hugely restricted. I'm not saying it's kind of a nirvana where everyone's always available and and, and things like that, but it, it is really the sort of the counter to what to what U.S. sports is is kind of praised for in a lot of outside outside of outside of the continent by a lot of people you know you want your stars to be storytellers you want them to be able to really convey what's going on you want them to give that sort of glimpse behind the scenes and really Messi only talks with his with his feet right and that has carried his career and that is incredibly a spectacular thing in itself and people are prepared to pay all that money both in sponsorship and tickets and all of that kind of thing but it is an interesting kind of counterweight to to what we're used to seeing in the states and I think that the the other thing that strikes me is Messi, when he came, you know, there's all these conversations about, you know, legacy for MLS and legacy for Inter Miami and the brand of MLS and Inter Miami. And, and I do increasingly feel, and I'm really interested in what Paul thinks about this, as though th- there is a danger that the brand of both MLS and, Maya- and Inter Miami just becomes Messi, right? And then actually when Messi's gone... In two years' time, does Hong Kong actually want into Miami to visit? Because surely that's the point of this this whole thing is to grow the teams, right? To not make it all about kind of individual stars that you get a, a quick glimpse of, you know, to kind of start to move away from that world where MLS is kind of reliant on a, a Beckham or a Zlatan or a Messi to pop in for a couple of years and really develop the teams and add value to the teams. You know, I know the valuations of of these, you know, are, are huge as it is, but surely that was the plan in the first place that it doesn't just become kind of a billboard for an individual and is far more about growing the business as a whole. Yeah. I mean, I'm glad you bring it up because I'm writing a book about just that, that subject, <laughs> which is, you know, the messy effect and, and how do you leverage that as major league soccer and in American soccer? How do you find that balance between making Messi the face of your league and the face of the growth of soccer, but knowing that he's 36 years old and his contract runs through the end of 2025, maybe he plays that 2026 year, maybe not, but you have a very short timeline where he is going to be on the field. And when he leaves, how do you take full advantage of that moment, of of this moment now where he's on the field? How do you pull in as many eyeballs as you can to watch Messi, but the bigger challenge is keeping them when he's gone? And that is the task that MLS faces now. And it's it's really twofold. You You have to change the narrative around MLS, both domestically and internationally, and say this is a league that has grown a lot. The quality is much better. And, and the best way to do that is to actually grow the quality of the game of the, of the teams. And that's in a way that's not going to resonate with American sports fans who aren't already tuning in. So you, you, you buy better players who aren't necessarily known to the general public in America, but increase the quality on the field. But then you do have to do something that says, okay, MLS is relevant. MLS matters. And, and, and that's where that star factor has always come in. It's this balance of you need this Latans, 
But you also need the Miguel Almirones that you sign out of Argentina that nobody knows who becomes a star in MLS and then is sold on to the Premier League. And and you need both of those things to happen together in a way that flips the narrative here in America and and pulls more of the mainstream media who who pay less attention to to soccer to say, okay, this is a league we need to discuss more and we need to and and the casual sports fans say, oh, this isn't uh, an amateur league. This is a, a real professional league. And Messi provides a chance to accelerate that going into the World Cup, right? You can use his celebrity to pull in more fans. And then the task is the other teams are strong enough to to kind of earn respect from the fans that start to watch. And people say, okay, the quality of this league isn't as bad as I thought. I'm going to stick around. And then when Messi leaves, you got to give him a reason to stick around. And so it is a very difficult task. It is a really tough balance that, that MLS is going to face and certainly that Ender Miami is going to face. Because as we noted before, you can't just sign another Messi when he's gone. Even if you go and you sign Griezmann, it's not the same thing as signing Messi. So you have to build an infrastructure. You have to build a fan base that is about Inter Miami because when Messi's gone, it's going to be a while probably before an MLS team is going to be able to sign Mbappe. And, and that's probably the next big personality that could have the same type of impact. Just a window into that value is that game in Hong Kong, you know, the organizers put in a clause that if the four players, so the four marquee players that they judge to be marquee, so you've got Lionel Messi, Jordi Alba, Luis Suarez and Sergio Busquets, if they were fit, the the contractual clause said they had to play at least 45 minutes. And you would imagine that the consequence of that not happening, because Busquets and Alba came on after an hour as well, which probably again just sort of added to the feeling that the game maybe wasn't treated as seriously as it might have been, is probably that there is going to be some sort of financial settlement needed. So so all of this, you know, the, the financial potential of Inter Miami at the moment does depend on sort of a very, very small amount of aging in individuals. And, and that's that's the business model they've chosen. It might well work. It's just a very different world to the one that we're, I suppose, more used to talking to in the English Premier League, where it is, it is all about teams, right? We, do, we don't actually really have, you know, Haaland aside, maybe. We don't really have superstars, right? Actually, the English Premier League, you know, it's always been Real Madrid and Barcelona that would get the superstars often. And then actually it was the teams that would really grow a league more than actually, you know, the stars. You know, the Premier League doesn't have Jude Bellingham at the moment, but it doesn't really matter because the, the brand of the, of, of the clubs is so strong. This is a paid advertisement from BetterHelp Therapy Online. Do you ever get that feeling that you need to get something off your chest? We all carry around different stresses, big and small. And when we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe place to release and discuss those thoughts and feelings and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, why not give BetterHelp a try? It's entirely online and it's designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. All you need to do is fill out a brief questionnaire to match with a licensed therapist. And if things don't click, you can switch to someone new at any time with no additional charge. With over 1,000 therapists in the UK already, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. And because you listen to this podcast, you can get 10% off your first month of online therapy by heading to betterhelp.com slash athleticfootball. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P.com slash athleticfootball with no spaces. 
You're listening to the Athletic Football Podcast with Io Akimolera. Paul, oh, Adam makes a, a really good point there in terms of, of leagues and the MLS. And you're talking about the PR of the MLS and certain players not transcending that is, you know, a, a likely comparison to the Saudi Pro League. And you look at that game between Al Nasir without a Cristiano Ronaldo and into Miami were beaten badly. What does that say about where the MLS is compared to a league that's trying to prove that it's better than the MLS and it's more sustainable than the MLS in the long term? Yeah, it's tough because it's a preseason game where Inter Miami's three weeks into preseason against a team in the middle of their season in, in full form. But it doesn't matter to the people on the outside that are watching that game, right? This is a rare opportunity to measure one league against another league. And the reality is MLS has a long way to go and to grow. Their rules are designed for these teams to be top heavy. You have your best players making a lot of money at the very top of the roster. And, you know, most teams have kind of three to seven players that are making a good amount of money. And then the depth behind that is not as strong as as leagues around the world. And there's been a real push within the league to change the rules, to open things up, to allow that depth to build so that you can be more competitive globally. And and MLS, their emphasis has always been on domestic competition. If we make our league as balanced as possible, we'll keep our fans happy in every market and we'll keep the stadiums full. And the stadiums have been full. But there is going to be a point where MLS hits its ceiling in terms of how much it can charge fans, how much revenue it can get from tickets. And they have to balance that out with television money, which is what makes the Premier League go and what makes Champions League go and all of these other leagues. Well, in order to increase your television audience, you need to convince the American public that it's a league worth watching because they can wake up on a Saturday morning and watch any Premier League game that they want, any Bundesliga game that they want. You can even here we can even get La Liga, the championship, you name it. I can watch it on the mo- in the morning. So MLS doesn't have domestic competition for top level football but it does on television. And that is that next layer of this argument of how do we grow Major League Soccer that the owners are asking? What do we do to be able to better compete with the world? And you're going to have this critical moment in 2025 of the Club World Cup here on U.S. soil where MLS teams are going to face off against the best clubs in the world. And it's another opportunity to put on a good show for American fans to say, hey, these MLS teams are not as bad as we might think. They can, you know, even if they lose to Manchester United or Man- Manchester City three to one, but they they play decent football, that that makes a convincing argument to a fan. Okay, maybe I'll go out and watch Seattle play or, or another team play. But if they go out and they get smashed six nothing, well, that's the opposite. It, it pulls MLS backwards, and and so that's really this this critical moment now in American soccer of. You have Messi, you have this Club World Cup, you have the World Cup coming in 2026, and the popularity of the sport we know will grow out of that summer. How do you take advantage of that? And how do you change the league rules to best leverage that moment? And that debate is happening in real time right now amongst the MLS owners on the board of what do we do to best capitalize? And I don't know that there's a clear answer. You know, in MLS's mind, they they are looking at this. A lot of these owners have been arguing that this is the long game. Because unlike European leagues, this league was founded in 1996. It is not that old. Miami is like a five-year-old team. You know, even some of the better teams, LAFC, you know, was founded in 2017. So there's not history. There's no 
you know, my father was from Costa Rica. I grew up a fan of Alawalense because that's what my father was a fan of and his father was a fan of. That doesn't ha- that hasn't happened really in America yet. I'm just teaching my four-year-old and two-year-old my teams. So the generational fandom, we need to wait another 20 years to really see the impact of that. And then there's this other sector of, of owners who are saying, well, we don't really need to wait 20 years. We can pull in new fans in other ways. And that's kind of, I think, the the base of the argument here of, do we continue slow growth and base it on kind of the generational impact of, of sports or do we accelerate it because we have a league filled with billionaire owners, probably the richest group of owners outside of the Premier League, and it's right up there with them. A lot of the owners are the same and say, OK, let's let's use a little bit more of this money, maybe take on some more losses on the on the short end, betting that will increase the audience and thus increase the revenue and and you know, there's a real battle right now. You're talking about, you know, some of the potential rewards of kind of the longer term. I suppose the risks in the shorter term, particularly when you talk about these key moments where you've got Club World Cup and also 26, but you also have kind of a a rival baby league sprouting up in terms of, you know, what's going on in Saudi Arabia that's also keen to be that kind of next market outside of Europe that, that really takes shape. And you also have, I think what what is probably going to be a land grab in the States by European teams over the next 10 to 15 years as well. So really interesting thing happening this summer where you have most of the Premier League is going to end up playing pre-season friendlies this year in the United States. Now, that's mostly because they're looking two years out, they're almost working back from the World Cup. So World Cup 26 year, they're thinking the market's quite saturated for soccer that year. So... Uh, and also 2025, you've got the Club World Cup. So that's going to be saturated as well. So therefore, everyone's going this summer to the US because they want to get the appearance fees that they get from these friendlies, which are really, really big. And they also want the sponsorship and they want all those different engagements with fans and they're seeing this growing market and TV deals, all that sort of stuff. But what, what they're doing this summer, which is interesting, last summer, Man United and Arsenal played each other at the MetLife and it sold out. And that's, that's New Jersey, the stadium that's going to play the World Cup final in 26. This coming summer, Man United, Arsenal and Liverpool are all playing each other again in the States. They're not going, you know, there might be the odd game against, you know, maybe a US team or a traveling European team as well. But you've also got Chelsea playing Man City in the US. And I, I do wonder, some people will say this is conspiratorial. I wonder whether some of these European clubs, because you've also got, I think, is it Madrid, Juventus, and another team are going out there to play each other as a group like they did last year as well, whether they're all starting to build like a body of evidence that shows we can sell out stadiums by giving people the proper stuff, right? They get the MLS, but they're waking up at you know eight in the morning to watch games in the Premier League as it is. Why don't we, why don't we give them some of this competitively? What could we make doing that? You know, that's why I think, you know, a Champions League final, for example, there's loads of owners of European clubs that would love to play a Champions League final in New York, right? To the, Or Miami. They see that as like a no-brainer, right? Why is that so different to playing in, you know, previously, obviously before wars, Moscow or Baku or, you know, in terms of flight time and things like that, it's not so dramatic. And, and I think that's something that's going on. You have this really interesting court case at the moment where you've got US soccer and, and a promoter called Relevant and FIFA that are all kind of shaking up whether it is actually possible to restrict teams from playing games outside their country and how possible that's going to be in the long term and how sustainable 
that position is. And the interesting thing is I think Premier League clubs would never admit to this, right? They would never say we want to take big Premier League games outside of the UK. And I I don't think they do at the moment, to be honest. I think they'd probably be well after kind of La Liga and the French League in terms of doing that. But if everyone else starts to do it, you can bet that there'll be a point where they start to think about it properly as well. And actually the resistance has come from other US sports who are kind of saying, well, that could grab a share of sponsorship and marketing and TV deals and all of that kind of thing. I mean, US sports are a fascinating thing because for an economy that's so open in many ways in the States in general, US sports are very kind of protectionist, actually. You know, when just what Paul was saying about sort of all the different rules around MLS in terms of wage caps and all of this kind of stuff, and also market share. And I think also, you know, US soccer would want would want something out of it, right? Like if you're going to be making money playing in our country, what are we getting out of it? Do you give, I don't know, a percentage of money that you're making from this towards development of of grassroots football in the States or something like that? You know, so I think some of these conversations are going to happen more and more. And I think that's why there is a more urgent need for MLS to move faster than thinking we can wait for that kind of our grandparents' children in, in sort of 25, 30 years, that's, that's going to be a lot longer unless people are having kids really fast, um, to kind of sort it all out for us. And I think that's why some of those owners are looking at it and thinking, we need to get moving on this. Yeah, I mean, Adam, I, I, I think you need to come co-write the book with me because you've done a chapter here that I'm <laughs> writing on, which is which is exactly right. That relevant lawsuit is so critical because it, it does introduce the idea of competitive football being played here in the US and being competition to MLS. And you're right. And when you when we talk about other leagues being worried about so, sorry, just just to explain this, this goes back to when I think there was a La Liga game, a Spanish La Liga game that they wanted to play, I think it was in Miami a few years ago. And in the end it didn't happen and and I think relevant were the promoters that wanted to take it over. And FIFA and US soccer ended up sort of being an obstacle to that um, at the time. Right. And then La Liga didn't want it to happen at first because of the backlash in Spain. And so then Relevant used an, uh, uh, a game between two Ecuadorian teams to essentially set the stage for this lawsuit that they were going to host an Ecuadorian league game in Miami. But it does. It does bring competition. And some of those owners of other leagues, by the way, are MLS owners, right? So they have stakes in multiple leagues. You've got the Hunt family who just won a Super Bowl. They own FC Dallas. They're one of the most prominent and important voices on the MLS Board of Governors. The Kraft family of the Patriots own the Revolution, David Tepper, the Panthers, and Charlotte FC. You can keep going down the list. Um, but you're, I agree with you. And I think there is there there are people making that argument saying, let's not be naive to the idea that we are not the only ones that recognize how robust this market is. As a side note to that, and maybe an aside that MLS needs to wake up to is this, this American market has shown that they have this massive appetite for the best soccer, the best football in the world. They watch the World Cup. They watch the U.S. men's national team. They love the Premier League. They they will tune into Champions League. They will latch on to the U.S. women's national team. It's really MLS that's not taking full advantage of, of just how robust that market is. And they're by the way, they're also tuning in for games with Messi in them to a different degree than they're tuning into the rest of the MLS game. So if you sit still, or even if you grow just a little bit, it's the same thing as sitting still or moving backwards if other people are growing more than you. And I think that is the risk of the Premier League coming, La Liga coming and playing games, Bundesliga, Champions League, Liga Mekis. If if that relevant lawsuit happens and they win, 
Now you've got Club America against Chivas that you've got to worry about that will sell out stadiums. And and thus the kind of creation of this League's Cup to try to capitalize on the popularity of the Mexican League here in the U.S. as well. So all of these dynamics are spinning around in this, this moment in time when the eyes of the world, of the footballing world, are coming to the U.S., for three and potentially four summers in a row with Copa America Club World Cup, World Cup, potentially Women's World Cup in 27, and then even the Olympics the following year in LA, that, you know, you have this opportunity. What are you going to do with it? There's not a clear answer yet. And, you know, I think that's a scary thing, but, it, you know, in a way it also gets me excited because we know that this is an unprecedented opportunity. The sport in this country is going to change whether MLS does or not. And the access to the game is going to change, I, I believe, whether MLS changes dramatically or not. But certainly, I think it, when we talk about the growth of domestic football in the United States, of soccer, of major league soccer, the decisions that are made this year and next year ahead of that World Cup are going to be absolutely critical to the short-term and long-term future of the league. And you know, the fact that there's not a clear path, I think, is, is just so, so intriguing. All right, let's end it there. Gents, thanks so much for your time. Adam, Paul, I know you're early up there, Paul. Thanks for joining us in the US. And also don't forget to join us tomorrow for another episode of the Athletic Football Podcast. Don't forget to rate and review us as well. We'll see you soon. You've been listening to the Athletic Football Podcast. The producers were Guy Clark, Mike Stavro and Jay Beal and the executive producer was A.D. Moorhead. To listen to other great Athletic Podcasts for free, search for The Athletic on Apple, Spotify and all the usual places. The Athletic Football Podcast is an Athletic Media Company production. The Athletic.